to the next best podcast with your hosts, Chris Cashman. 24 years old, a former sheet metal worker, Mr. America, and twice Mr. Universe. And Chris Daniels. Time Magazine even named him Person of the Century. Now, from the CNC Podcast Factory, here's the next best podcast. Well, hi there, Chris. We have reached the uh, well, the halfway point of summer, so it just makes sense that we come inside and we close a curtain on a beautiful, sunshiny day to talk about the very latest on the uh, Seattle Arena Project. It's the dead of summer. This is one of those weeks where everybody says it's the slowest week in sports. There's yeah. nothing to talk about. But leave it to you, the man who has been <laughs> on the beat. Bring back the Sonics for a, a decade now. This is actually an exclusive if we were on TV right now, we'd have a golden graphic that it's, would say it's exclusive. It's a next best podcast exclusive. Yes. So there is some stuff happening this week. It's hard to get terribly excited about a research, uh, a study out of a university, but in this case, very relevant. Yeah, a couple of things happened this week. Uh, there, there was the first review of the Oakview proposal by the Seattle right. City Council uh, and, and what to expect and how those negotiations are going to work. And just about the same time that meeting was wrapping up, uh, apparently, this was not planned. Uh, the University of Washington Evans School released its own study of the Key Arena proposal and the Soto Arena proposal and tax collections done by a guy named Justin Marlowe, who works at the Evans School, works at the University of Washington, does a lot of economic data research, uh, tax research. I mean, this is his thing. And uh, he did a study uh, of what he sees in both of these particular uh, proposals. So at the end of the day, for the casual fans who don't want to get into these documents and the back and forth that has been happening over the past many months. You can uh, get lost in the numbers. Seattle yeah. Center versus Soto. Uh, this is very valuable information because he's basically trying to break down the, uh, the numbers because there's been a lot of claims, and a lot of it is over the head of most of us. So we have to take them at their word or just assume they're not being honest about how the money will break down, who's paying what, how much of it will be a return. Uh, and in this case, they've broken down very exciting tax numbers, which I don't dare <laughs> crunch the numbers myself. So we let Justin Marlowe do it for us, and this was a Next Best Podcast exclusive interview. This is not for TV. This is not, not for something TV. we're repurposing. This is not something from king5.com. Uh, this is something you chose to do as a service for our podcast <laughs> listeners, both of you guys. <laughs> Chris has done this. So you got him on the phone, and you just basically had him uh, break down his findings. Yes, exactly. How did this study come about of both arena projects? So we were contacted by the Soto Group back in early May, and uh, they came to me and they said that they well, were interested in working with someone who would be willing and able to do the kind of financial analysis that they expected that the city uh, or the county or, or anyone else doing an independent uh, financial analysis of the public financing of this project uh, would do. And so we, they said that they, they were interested in, in getting you know, the kinds of numbers that would help to understand the public finance impacts of these proposals, but they wanted that done in as independent and straightforward a way as possible. Did they have any influence on how the study was conducted? No, they didn't. They didn't. They they gave us really free reign uh, to do it however they 
or however however we wanted to do it, I should say. Uh, they, you know, we we quickly agreed on what uh, public finance was. We took an admittedly kind of narrow view of that by focusing just on the taxes collected. Uh, I tried to make very clear from the beginning that this is not a benefit cost analysis or an analysis of the economic impact or any of the other kind of broader concerns that these types of analysis have tend to look at. Uh, just tried to zero in on the on the public finance side and, and once it was clear that that was within the scope of what they wanted accomplished, they let us handle the, the technical part of the analysis the way we saw best. So they didn't yeah, try to influence this at, at all, any way, shape, or form to, to have a particular outcome? No, no, not at all. Uh, and what exactly did you study here? Well, the basic goal of, of the project was to produce a financial model or what's really, it's, if, you, if you have a chance to, to download it from the website, it's really a big spreadsheet right? that has a bunch of different information in it. And you can take that spreadsheet and include different information, different assumptions that are relevant to this analysis. And the financial model produces the expected uh, taxes that would be collected by, uh, by each of the, or I should say, produces an estimate of each of the different types of taxes uh, that would be produced under whatever assumptions you give it. So really, what the what the financial model is is a is it just a, a doing a bunch of different calculations. The the tricky part with doing this kind of an analysis is to come up with what we would call the taxable base. So for something like the sales tax collections, for example, you have to make some assumptions about how much uh, retail activity is going to happen at each of the different arenas, how many different, uh, you know, how much revenue is going to be collected from selling concessions and merchandise and, and all the other things that would be subject to the sales tax. Same with the parking tax. You know, lots of assumptions about how many people would park, what they would pay to park, how many people would be at uh, you know, other, other uh, parking sites, other parking venues that may or may not be subject to the parking tax. So all of that information is fed into the into the model, and then what the model gives you is the expected tax collections for each of the the main tax sources. That's the main deliverable. And again, the the, the spreadsheet, the financial model that we produced, is available for anyone who wants to look at it. What we did then was we applied a set of assumptions for both of the proposals. So we took all the information that the Soto Group has put forward. Then we took all of the information that OBG has put forward, particularly in their response to the RFP, and we said, based on that information, what would we expect to see in tax collections? And so that's what we call the base case assumption. So we developed this tool, and then we fed into that tool the the information that we know about the proposals, and that produced uh, some of the the numbers that we put forward in our report. And and just to back up, yeah, you're you're making these assumptions based on the bid that was put forward during the RFP process from OVG, correct? That's right. And and it was property tax, sales tax, B&O tax, parking taxes, leasehold excise taxes, and admissions taxes that all kind of developed this formula for what your findings were. That's correct. Uh, and, and what was one of the things that, that jumped uh, off the page to you when looking at these these two projects? Well, one thing that jumps off the page is that you find out just how sensitive these tax collection numbers are. 
uh, to the assumptions that you're willing to make. And again, that's I would encourage anyone who's who's interested in this issue to take a look at the model, uh, run it yourself, change some numbers, uh, put in the assumptions that, that you think are realistic or, or not realistic, and, and see what the model gives you. You find that it's very sensitive to little things, right? Like the uh, for example, the, the percentage of people who would who would park, or the uh, numbers like the percentage of uh, attendance. You know, in other words, how much, what percentage of, of tickets are going to be routinely sold? Uh, there's a big difference. For example, if you assume that you have a very successful team, say an NBA team that's selling out uh, consistently, say 90 to 95 percent of its tickets, uh, compared to a team that's selling say, uh, 70 to 75 percent of its tickets, you know, the 75 percent number would be kind of at the low end of the league, and the 95 percent number would be kind of at the high end of the league. And, you know, that, that number alone will, will lead to a pretty dramatic change in something like sales tax collections. So you, what jumps out at you is, is that these numbers are very sensitive to what you are or are not willing to assume. And there was an element to it of revenue sharing. Can you explain that? Yeah, we tried to model as best we could uh, our understanding of what OVG is going to try to negotiate with the city. And the idea there was that, uh, as I understand it at least, OVG has said that they would like the city to create uh, what they are, uh, for the moment, calling a city arena fund, which would be a, a dedicated fund on the city's balance sheet that where all of the, uh, the, the spending required to maintain the arena at whatever level of quality they want the arena maintained at would have to come from. And OVG has said that um, once a certain amount of revenue has been uh, contributed to that city arena fund, which would basically be all of the the taxes that they would like redirected, uh, particularly things like the sales tax uh, and the the so the sales tax really being the big one, all of that would be redirected to the city arena fund. Once the city arena fund has a certain uh, amount of money that has been directed to it, I think the number is $40 million, then beyond that, OVG has said that they would be willing to share in any revenues that, would, that are left over in that fund uh, from that point forward after all of the required uh, expenses to maintain the arena have been taken care of. And so we, according to our calculations, uh, that revenue sharing begins probably in about year nine. And from that point forward, the amount of revenue that the city would be able to keep, uh, or in other words, the amount of revenue that would flow to the city's general fund, kind of depends on what you're willing to assume about how much revenue would be left over in that fund. We assume that 20% of the, of the revenue that would flow into that fund would be uh, both left over and available for the city. And again, that's a number also that's very sensitive. If that number is, say, 10%, then half as much flows into the city's general fund. Uh, so that was that was our understanding of, of the mechanism by which OVG would, uh, would the, or I should say, the, the mechanism by which the city would see revenues flowing into the general fund under that scenario. Uh, I know that, you know, talking with people at the city over the last uh, several months about this, there's kind of this discussion that it's it, some of the, the these two projects, it's apples and oranges because you're talking about a public park, a city-owned entity versus building something uh, that involves uh, or would need to have a city street. Uh, but, but one of the things uh, that you pointed out in your study 
uh, was that there's a difference here with property taxes and property taxes that would be collected in one spot versus the other and how that fits in to, to all of this. Can you explain that? Sure. Well, before that, too, I, I want to make one quick point to be really clear about something. The, uh, you know, we reached out to the city, too, and, and the city uh, didn't reply. And I don't, I don't take that as a, a criticism. You know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that everything that we're doing in this analysis is probably being done at the city. And uh, I, I, I know those folks. I've actually helped to train several of the analysts who work in the city budget office and on the council central staff. So none of this is meant to be a criticism uh, of, of them or their work. Uh, on the on the question of the of the property tax in particular, yeah, I mean the big difference, of course, is that with with Soto, you're talking about a privately owned entity on privately held land, and then K Arena is, as you said, a, a publicly held uh, facility on on what is really public land. So the Soto Arena will, if it were built, uh, would would generate property taxes. It would generate property taxes the same as any other, you know, big commercial holding or or any other big valuable piece of property. As it stands right now, the in, in theory you could have an arrangement where you could have a publicly owned facility that's operated by a private entity, and that private entity might make some kind of a payment that would be like a property tax, maybe a maybe a lease payment or a leasehold uh, payment of some sort. Uh, my understanding is that OVG has has said that you know, they, they may or may not be amenable to that, but if they do pay anything to that effect. It would very likely flow into the that city arena fund that we were just talking about. So that's not necessarily money that goes uh, to the city's general fund. That's money that goes back into the arena. Now that's now I, I can see the the point that that makes these very different kinds of of projects with respect to where the tax revenues flow, and that's a fair point. But uh, at the end of the day, the question we were asking was what revenues flow to the city and what revenues are redirected to the arena projects under both of these scenarios. And in my view, both of the proposals are comparable uh, on, on that point specifically. There's other, there's other factors where you could argue they're less comparable, but you know, we focused our analysis just on the flows of the tax revenues, and that way I think it's, uh, it's not an apples to oranges comparison. Yeah, and, and you know, we should point out that a lot of this is open to negotiation. That's what the process is with the city of Seattle right now. There's the potential that the Liwiki group uh, takes one of these taxes off the table. Uh, I mean, this is, this is how negotiation works. You and I have talked uh, a lot about taxes uh, already. And, and just to sum up, this is something that you look at all the time. I mean, this, this is your background. Can you explain your background there at the Evans School at the University of Washington and, and what kind of work you do on a normal basis? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a lot of a lot of this sort of stuff in in state and local public finance, uh, which is my specialty area. Uh, this is what we do. We look at uh, tax collections, changes in tax policies. We look at how uh, cities and, and counties and state governments finance infrastructure projects. Uh, a lot of my research and a lot of my teaching is in exactly this area. Uh, so this is you're right. We develop models like this a lot. We teach our students how to use models like this a lot. Uh, which was again the, the the real I think the real takeaway from this entire project is is that anyone could go out take this tool use it to do their own analysis and I would encourage anyone who's interested 
as you were pointing out, I mean, a big part of this is going to be an evolving, ongoing negotiation. And I'd encourage anyone who wants to follow that and see what the negotiation, how it unfolds, and what that means for the different public finance and it, uh, different public finance aspects of this. Uh, they really should take the model and and, uh, and update it in real time. That's what it's there to do. And all of this is available on the University of Washington Evans School website, correct? It is. All right. Professor Marlowe, I'm out of time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. So uh, a very cool conversation there that breaks down the numbers. Uh, where do we go from here, Chris? What's next? Well, it'll be interesting to see if he gets any traction with that. I think uh, at least this week, especially with it being the summer, there's been a lot of shrugged shoulders uh, as people try to go through these numbers. But you heard what he had to say, that he thinks there's people at City Hall who are now looking at it and perhaps looking at uh, these two proposals in a different light. And he hopes that it starts the conversation. There's going to be more conversation, this civic Arena's committee is going to review the proposal again and, and the status of the negotiations in August. Before that, a few days before that, the Landmarks Board will look at Key Arena and the other buildings around there, and that could factor into what exactly is proposed in a memorandum of understanding in September. So baby steps as we go along, but August and September there will be more news, and perhaps we have a uh, decision on which direction the city goes in by the end of the year. Do you think this will shift the momentum, which clearly seems to be circling uh, Seattle Center, even if just by default of uh, the city council and the mayor and all of that? These findings present a different leaning. Well, they, they lean a certain way, uh, but you know the, the some of the feedback I've had is, well, the, the MOU is not final yet. We don't have final numbers to really hold up side by side. So uh, perhaps this starts a, a conversation. It gets people in the budget office looking at it. But yeah, I, I think, you know, based on what I've seen this week, yeah, all momentum is at Key Arena. But we shall see. Just had to make a dramatic ending, yeah. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter and Instagram. At next best pod, this is the exclusive ending of the next best podcast.